and welcome to the official podcast of CallUponTheLord.com. My name's Corey Wigington, and this is episode 21. This week we are on week 21 of The Great Story. We're focusing on the rebuilding of the Wall of Jerusalem today. So it should be an interesting study. We're going to talk about Ezra, Nehemiah, and a little bit about Malachi there at the end. So, I'm glad you've joined us here today. If you've not already done so, head out to the website and grab your study guide. That's www.calluponthelord.com. Click on the link that says Bible Studies. Go down to Corey Wickington and select The Great Story. You'll see all of our study guides there, as well as an archive of all the previous studies that we have done. So go ahead and download your study guide and be prepared to learn a little bit about the Bible today. So if you've not done so, go ahead and out to Facebook. Like us there. We're facebook.com slash callupontheLord. I think we're up to 2,250 users right now. So, it's very exciting. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started for the week. So, last week we spoke about the book of Esther. <clears throat> and the week before that, uh, it was the return to Judah, where... Zerubbabel, the last king of, uh, the last rightful king who wielded administrative power in Judah, he led the people back uh, to Judah and started the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, then we got into the book of Esther, and Esther kind of filled the, the gap in between where Zerubbabel led the people back, and now uh, we're getting ready to talk about <clears throat> I'm sorry, about Nehemiah. So, the thing about the Old Testament is you got to realize, and this always confused me when I was a kid, the Old Testament is not in order. And it, it's very confusing, because you're constantly jumping around from one place to another to another, and it's really difficult to get a, a grasp over, well, it, it talks about this over here in this book that's way early, and then we skip all the way to the end. I mean... Ezra and Nehemiah are some talk about some of the last events that happened in the Old Testament. They should be butted up pretty much next to, to Malachi, because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, but they're not. They're, they're separated by a lot of books. I mean, you got all the major prophets and minor prophets basically between them. So, it is a little bit confusing, but we're going to try to clean that up a little bit for you. So, basically... We have the first half of Ezra is talking about the first time that the Jews went back from Babylon. And here in your study guide, you'll see that we have three uh, exilic returns from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem. The first one happens in Ezra 1 through 6. That happens around the year 538 BC. Okay? That's when Zerubbabel takes all the people, well, about 45,000 people, back to Jerusalem, and they begin the reconstruction on the temple. Okay, then we have about a 70 or 80 year time period in there, it's kind of a, a gap. Uh, we get to 458 BC, and that's in Ezra 7 through 10. That's when Ezra heads back during the second exilic return. So in 458 BC, a second group of Jews come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then the third exilic return happens in 445 BC, and we read about that in Nehemiah 
1 through 13. Okay. <clears throat> now the reign to the kings, to kind of put this in perspective for you, the empire, uh, the Persian Empire, took over the Babylonian Empire. So obviously Persian Empire comes after the Babylonian Empire. So we first get introduced to King Cyrus, the first king that we know of, of the uh, Persian Empire, at least biblically know of. Historically, we know of several other kings uh, that were in the Persian Empire. But biblically speaking, the first king mentioned of the, the Persian Empire was King Cyrus. Now his reign was from 559 to 530 B.C. He was the king that captured Babylon in the time of Daniel. So we read about him in the time of Daniel, um, where you know the writing on the wall. Daniel prophesied, you know, that you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and then Cyrus comes in and takes over Babylon and establishes control. So that's first king of Babylon. The second king of Babylon was King Darius the first. Okay. King Darius reigned from 521 B.C. to 486 B.C. So he was the king uh, during the time that the temple was getting rebuilt. You remember he came to power uh, kind of toward the end of that, like the last three years of that, and he's the one that actually made certain that, you know, okay, the temple's reconstruction is going to get restarted and everything's going to to get finished the way that King Cyrus had originally commanded it like 16 years earlier. There's a gap of time between the rule of King Cyrus and King Darius. I think there were two other kings in there. For our purposes, those kings aren't important, but you should know that there was a couple other kings in there. After King Darius, we have King Xerxes. Okay, King Xerxes lived for, or reigned from 486 B.C. to about 465 B.C. King Xerxes, that time period, was the time of Esther. So the book of Esther kind of fit right in there. And now we're going to talk about King Artaxerxes. That's King Xerxes' son. That was probably, his mother was probably Vashti. You remember Vashti was the one that got exiled because she wouldn't obey the king. Um, that was probably his mother. Was it? Uh, was not Esther. Esther was probably his stepmother. So, King Artaxerxes was the king that was uh, king of Persia that was reigning during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's where we are today. So, despite the the Old Testament kind of being broken up, and there are reasons why it's broken up, and we're probably not going to discuss that here. But it is not a chronological depiction of what happens. So, you have to look at certain books of the Bible, depending on what uh, time period you're looking to investigate. They're a little bit uh, scattered, as it were. So hopefully that puts it in a little bit better perspective for you. So, Ezra. Ezra, Ezra was a scribe. He was also a priest. Uh, the book of Ezra, Ezra was Ezra 7, 1 through 5, actually traces his lineage back, all the way back to the great high priest Aaron. Because you remember, in the Old Testament, the, the priesthood was established through the sons of Aaron. And only if you were a son of Aaron could you be a priest. Otherwise, you were just a Levite. And Levites had temple duties, but they were not priestly duties. So Ezra was both a scribe and a priest. Uh, he was actually attributed with writing uh, 
couple of the books in the Old Testament. Um, Ezra, he traveled back to Jerusalem in 458. So he came back with the second return. Uh, let's read about uh, Ezra. Let's look at uh, Ezra 9, 1 through 2. And we'll just uh, we'll see what the problem that Ezra ran into when he got back to Jerusalem. It says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of other lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Okay, so what's going on here? First off, Ezra gets back to Jerusalem. And you remember, he's a priest, he's a scribe, he's a very godly man. Matter of fact, you kind of get the sense from uh, the way Ezra reads that maybe Ezra was a, an appointed official for Artaxerxes. Maybe he was some type of a, you know, kind of a chief over religious matters for uh, Artaxerxes. So he had some type of, a, you know, responsibility anyway. He gets back to Jerusalem, and the first thing he sees. Now we didn't read like. Verses or chapter seven and eight, where he's coming back to the land and he's uh, purifying himself and, and people around him, and you know he's making sacrifices and such. Uh, well, I really want you to get here is when he gets back to Jerusalem, he sees that the people are intermarried. Okay, now this is one of the problems that got them booted out of the promised land to begin with, because you remember the big issue was that they were serving other gods, that they had idols, that they were giving sacrifices to other gods and God doesn't like that. I mean, you keep his commandments. That's that's the thing. That's why he gave us ten of them. So Ezra comes back to town and he sees that people have been intermarrying with these foreign women. Now, it talks about uh, quoted exactly here, it says, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of other lands. This is not a racism thing. This isn't talking about, well, the Jews have to maintain their purity and, and such. That That's not a, a, the issue here. The issue here, well, and let me just talk about that a little bit more. It's not an issue because we know that that had been done previously. You remember back to Rahab and back to Ruth. Both of those women were not Jews. They were Gentile women, and they married Jewish men. Those, those two women are in the messianic line. So if we had to worry about a purity of race thing, that, that's not an issue here because we already know that Rahab and Ruth weren't Jews. They were brought into the, uh, the Jewish system because they married their husbands. The issue here is not your, your race or your heredity. The issue here is these people what they didn't want was people serving other gods. And that's what would happen. They go on to talk about Solomon, as great as Solomon was, and how much God loved Solomon. And what was Solomon's sin? He married everybody, and he had concubines everywhere. And as a result, he started worshiping these other gods. That's the point here. 
if you marry up these these other women like they were doing, they were turning their back on the one true God and started serving the gods of these other races, of these other peoples around them. And that's what God didn't tolerate. So it wasn't that they were marrying the foreign women, it was that they were also serving their gods or giving those other gods you know, the same type of worship that they were giving the one true God. So that's what Ezra had problems with. So the first thing that Ezra does is he repents of their sin. You know, he, he goes before God and says, God, please don't hold this against us again. We just got back from 70 years of exile. We'll get this fixed. So Ezra, let's look at Ezra 10, 1 through 4 real quick. And it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So again, what's happening here, <clears throat> Ezra's making known that they have violated uh, the commandments of the Lord. He comes into town. He starts talking to uh, the leaders that are in the town. He says, look, this is what the Lord has commanded. These are what the commandments say. You're breaking them. We need to get this fixed. And as he's praying before the temple, the leaders come around him and said, Ezra, you're right. We've broken the law here. We're going to do what you say to do. We're going to put these women out and put the children out that we, we had with these women, and we're going to repent before God. Now, this is a rough situation. Remember, in Malachi, it says that God hates divorce. And that's exactly what's going on here. They, they are divorcing these wives because they have broken a covenant of, of God. It's a rough situation, but they have to follow the commandment of God. They, they've messed up here. They've started serving these other gods. They need to cut it off and turn back to God. So there, it was a, definitely a, a rough time morally putting out your, your wife and your children, but in keeping with the commandments of God, that's what they had to do. And it, further, it says uh, in verse 4, Arise, for it is your task. See, these <clears throat> leaders of Jerusalem, they realize Ezra's the priest. He's the one that's in charge. It is his responsibility to basically preside over all these divorces and make all these amends for people and to make, uh, you know, repent toward God, uh, to God for the people. So they're basically saying, yes, if this is your responsibility. Please fix us.
So that's kind of where we're, we're going to stop talking about Ezra for a little bit. Uh, Ezra comes into town. He, he tries to fix the, the intermarriage problem. And he does for, for a while. Next thing we come across is, is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, he started out in an interesting way. He was the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. And what that basically meant was that he tasted all of the food and made sure that it wasn't poisonous. This kind of earned him a little bit of a favor of the king. You remember, I mean, Nehemiah, he's put, basically putting his line, life on the line every time the king eats. So he, he develops this relationship with the king. The king gets to know him, and evidently he knows him well enough to understand his mood. Because the Bible says that Nehemiah came before him, and he was, he was sad. And the king questioned about it. And what does it say here? It says, Nehemiah... 2, 2 through 5. Let's look that up. It says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So Nehemiah, he's making a a pretty bold request here. He's not just asking, you know, can I go home for a little bit? He's basically saying, King, look, Jerusalem's been destroyed. I need to go rebuild it. And further, I want you to pay for it. This is a, a pretty bold statement, but you understand that he prays to God about all of this. He, he knows what he's supposed to, to ask the king. And because of God's favor, the king grants him everything that he wants. So the king gives him papers, it says, uh, and gives him you know, these letters of, of authority, basically saying, you have the right to go do this. And further, he gives him the right to pass through all of the lands that are between where he is. I think he's in Susa. Uh, pass from Susa to Jerusalem. So he... he allowed to pass all through those lands um, freely. Uh, he's allowed to take lumber from wherever he needs. The king sends with him captains and horsemen, so he's protected on this journey. It's about a three-month journey he has to take here, and it's not a safe journey. So the king sends him with the authority and with the men to do what he needs to do. Nehemiah ends up returning to Jerusalem in about 445. That is the third exilic return to Jerusalem. Uh, it says he arrives in the city, and this is in Nehemiah 2.11. He secretly goes around and checks out the city. So even though he's there, the officials don't know why he's there. He hasn't revealed his plan to them, hasn't revealed what God wants him to do yet. So he goes around, he checks out the walls, and he realizes... The walls are destroyed, all the gates are destroyed, the city's basically in ruins. And the problem, of course, is 
when you when a city doesn't have walls, especially in the, in those days, when it doesn't have walls, anybody can come in and out. It's completely open to attack. If you don't have a focal point for your attack, you can be attacked from all sides. So the city walls was was a matter of protection. Jerusalem was in ruins, and it had been for many many years. So that was his. Uh, reason why he wanted to rebuild it was because he wanted to rebuild the city of God and he can't do that unless the city has walls. So we get to the rebuilding. Let's look at this. It's in uh, Nehemiah 2 17 through 20. It says there. <clears throat> then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and rebuild. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Salabath the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Jeshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So a couple things here. First off, uh, it talks about Jeshem the Arab. Uh, he was possibly the ruler over this area. And, you know, it says here, Tobiah the Ammonite was his servant. So, possibly Jeshem was the former ruler over this uh, the area of Judah. Nehemiah had been given the authority over Judah, though. He was basically the governor of Judah. And we'll see that a little bit later as well in the, uh, in the text. Nehemiah had this power, though. So, he was coming in, displacing the people that were already there. And they weren't happy about it. The first thing they say is, are you rebelling against the king? It was more of a, a, of a jab at him that you can't rebuild this wall. This is rebellion. Of course, Nehemiah knew he'd already talked to the king about it. The king had given him the authority to do what he needed to do. So he's there to rebuild the wall at the king's request, despite what all these men are, are trying to do to him which is keep him from building the wall. If you read through Nehemiah, they are constantly trying to get him to stop or, or making fun of him. Uh, I made a list of, of seven attempts to stop him from working on the wall. <clears throat> the first one we just read was in 219. That's when he's mocked by uh, Sambalat and Tobiah. Um, Jeshum obviously was... But he was not there, but he was mentioned. <clears throat> in four, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Sinballat and Tobiah were again angry at the construction uh, and jeered at the Jews in front of their armies. In 4, 7 through 23, they threatened to attack Jerusalem, which, <laughs> that was uh, an interesting thing, because now... Not only does Nehemiah have to worry about constructing the wall, but now he has to arm his men and keep watch to make sure that these other people aren't going to attack him. 
Then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, they falsely accused Nehemiah of rebelling and trying to set himself up as king. And Nehemiah, you know, they, they basically try to get him out of the city in, in 6, 1 through 4. Come to us. Talk to us. And then in 6, 5 through 9, they say, because you are rebelling against the king, you know, just come and comfort us. They basically want to get him out of the city so they can stop the work and do away with uh, Nehemiah. And they threaten him. They say, look, we've been told, these people have told us that you're rebelling against the king. They're just making stuff up here. They know, or what they think they're, they're doing, is telling Nehemiah that we're going to tell on you, tell the king that you're rebelling, and he's going to kill you. They're trying to blackmail him, basically, and it's not going to work because Nehemiah already has his orders. Next thing they tried to do, they paid a prophet to come in to discredit Nehemiah. That's in chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. And then in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it talks about Tobiah writing letters that uh, were making Nehemiah afraid or were intended to make Nehemiah afraid. These people were constantly trying to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding Jerusalem. But Nehemiah, both, he, he grieved for Jerusalem in his heart. God had given him the command and the ability to, to go rebuild Jerusalem, and he had the authority of the king to do it. So it didn't matter what all these other people were doing. He knew what he was had to do, and he carried out those plans. So, for his part, he did a, a great job of, of organizing. So he comes to town, inspects the wall. If you read through Nehemiah, you'll see there are 45 separate construction zones mentioned around the city. It talks about this area, this area, this area. 45 of them are mentioned. Further, another 10 gates are mentioned that they need to, to reconstruct. So, I mean, he had a lot, of, a lot to do with coordinating just the construction. And he has to deal with all these outside people as well. So, it talks about half the men that should have been working are now kept on watch, watching for an attack, and they're always kept armed. Every man that was doing the construction always had a sword by his side. So, despite the threat of attack and imminent danger, they kept on working. They found a way to keep on working. So, eventually, Nehemiah was able to complete the wall. Once the wall, wall was completed, uh, he turned to Ezra. And Ezra brought the, the book of the law out of the temple and says he started reading the book of the law. And everybody stood there and listened to Ezra read. And as they listened, they realized the sins that they, they were still committing. So it says, well, let's read that. Not in Nehemiah 9, 2 through 3. <clears throat> so they still had foreigners uh, around them at this time. They had gotten away from them during the time of Ezra. And then in the inner interim between Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of started drifting back <coughs> toward the bad things again. It says, <clears throat> And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners 
and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their, uh, of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read for the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Uh, yeah. So here they are. They're listening to uh, Ezra read the book of the law. And it, it's affecting them. They understand we need to separate from these foreigners. They're, they're leading us down the wrong path. They're worshiping other gods. They're not honoring Yahweh. We need to separate from these people. So they do. They separate. They listen to the law. And then they begin to worship. That is the proper response to listening to the word. It's worship. And that's what it's, what's happening here. They hear the, the word of the law. And it touches their hearts. And they begin to worship God. So that's a proper response. That's a response that we all should have. So after the wall was rebuilt and Ezra had led, uh, read the law, Nehemiah's work is done. Okay, So this is about, uh, what, 433 B.C. The wall is done and there, he's ready to, uh, to leave because he, he's told, told the king that He'll be he'll be back after after the wall was uh, was rebuilt. So, not exactly sure when the wall wall was finished. Or at least uh, we're not going to talk about that. Um, but it indicates that for some period of time, Nehemiah went away from Jerusalem. He had to go back to the king. He told the king, "I want to go rebuild the wall." He did that. Now he's back. Now he has to return. So he goes back to the king. And the only indication that we get of, of length of time here, in Nehemiah 13.6, it says uh, either he spent a certain amount of time or some time in Persia before he asked the king to come back. Through different uh, other references, we're able to say he probably came back in around 424 B.C. And upon his return, he found several things wrong. First off, Tobiah, the guy, one of the guys that was causing problems to, in the first place, you know, uh, that was making fun of uh, the Jews for rebuilding the wall, was trying to kill Nehemiah. Tobiah had bribed one of the priests and was now living in the temple courts. So here we have this uh, non-Jew, uh, definitely a Gentile, maybe a Samaritan, living in the the courts of the temple. He was desecrating the temple. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent of what we see in the New Testament when Jesus goes into to the temple and he runs out all the money changers and the people selling all the, the sacrifices there uh, because they're, they're desecrating the temple. They're using the temple for their own personal means, for their personal profit, and they're not honoring God. The whole reason that the temple is there, they're not utilizing that. So, uh, when Nehemiah gets back to town, again, he has the governorship, as it were. Uh, that's the first thing he does. He sees Tobiah living in the temple. He, he throws him out, throws him out and all of his stuff out of the temple and tells the priest, purify it. Second thing he notices is 
part of the law was that you're supposed to keep aside a portion for the Levites because the Levites were, they didn't really have the land of their own. Their inheritance is God. So they, <laughs> the Levites were to serve at the temple. If they were priests, obviously they were priests. If, if not, they had other duties to, to perform. And a portion was supposed to be set aside for the Levites so they could do that duty. Well, no portion had been set aside for the Levites, so they had all gone back to their fields, and they weren't there. So the first thing Nehemiah does, well, I guess the second thing he does is come back, and he reestablishes that. Make sure that the portion is set aside, the Levites can come to the temple and do what they're supposed to be doing. Third thing he sees is the people aren't keeping the Sabbath holy. There are people coming in, selling things on the Sabbath. Uh, they're using their wine press and, and collecting things and, and they're working on the Sabbath and for the Jews that was a, a very critical thing you did not work on the Sabbath that was as part of the Ten Commandments as part of the law that was what they observed you did not work on the Sabbath that, again we, we talk about the reasons why there was a 70 year captivity because they didn't keep the year of Sabbath on the land so Sabbath was a, a big thing for them and when Nehemiah comes back and sees that they're not keeping the Sabbath, he reinstitutes that immediately. He throws the uh, traders, the, uh, the people selling goods outside of town, locks them outside the gates, and says, actually says that they, these uh, traders are camping outside the gates on the Sabbath. And you know, people were basically going out of the gates and uh, still do, buying stuff, find, finding ways to buy things. And Nehemiah told them, if you come back on the Sabbath, I'm going to kill you. And, you know, after, after he uh, pronounced that, they didn't come back on the Sabbath anymore. Interesting that. Uh, and again, we see uh, that the people were marrying foreign wives. So Nehemiah comes in, and he puts a stop to that yet again. So Nehemiah comes back, he does a lot of reforms to the land of of Israel. So now we jump all the way, you know, halfway through the Old Testament again to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the end. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. Now Malachi, he wrote at a time, um, probably during the time when Nehemiah was not present in Jerusalem, when Nehemiah had gone back to Persia. So it got like a what a nine or, or ten year time period here where Nehemiah is prophesying and he basically is prophesying about all the sins uh, that are being performed while Nehemiah is gone and Nehemiah ends up coming back and reforming that interesting thing about Nehemiah is he's the last prophet in the Old Testament after Nehemiah prophesies there is a 400 year period of silence there are no prophets in the land. God doesn't really do anything. During that time in history, the Greeks end up invading Israel, taking it over, lots of atrocities there. Uh, and then you have the Maccabean period where the Maccabees come in. They overthrew uh, Greece. And you know, then we have a, a period where Rome comes in and, and uh, basically takes charge of Israel. That, that's what happens in that 400-year time period. But in all of this, God's pretty silent. He's not 
there's no prophets in the land. It's, it's like they're holding their breath waiting for the Messiah. Let's read in Malachi 3.1. This is one of the things that Malachi prophesies. It says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's an interesting thing there. The messenger that he's talking about, that's kind of a reference back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Now what that is, that's John the Baptist. Okay? Someone who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Making you know, straight the way of the Lord. Uh, he basically comes to introduce the Messiah. And that's what Malachi is prophesying here. He says, in, in time, a messenger is going to be sent who will prophesy about the Messiah. Who is basically going to come and say, there's the one. There's the Messiah. Follow him. So let's, I'm going to read an entire chapter here. I normally don't do this. Um, but I'm going to read Malachi 4. Just because it's, it's the last little bit in the Old Testament. Malachi 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out, leaping like calves from a stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at, at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that's the, the last thing that's mentioned there in the Old Testament. It's, it's kind of a promise of the day of the Lord, a kind of a, a reckoning. Uh, it talks about Elijah the prophet coming. Uh, now, in the New Testament we see John the Baptist saying, well, I am not, I'm not that Elijah. Jesus, of course, said, had you accepted me as the Messiah, John the Baptist would have been that Elijah. But since you didn't, there will be another. And, you know, general consensus is that the next Elijah will be as one of the two witnesses uh, in the book of Revelation. And he he's going to be the one that comes. And, they, of course, they preach for... Uh, a, a while and, and turn the people back toward God uh, before they are killed. Uh, Elijah and, and probably Moses is the other witness in, in the book of Revelation. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there, though. Uh, but the point is, Malachi says the Messiah is coming, and he be ready for him. And that's the last word that we get in the Old Testament. And then we get the New Covenant, the New Testament. And that's where we all come in. 
So what what story do we have from this? I was thinking about that, trying to come up with uh, one good good thing that we can we can see out of this story. And I think what we see here is men love darkness, men love evil. It's much much easier to sin and do the things of the world than it is to follow the the, the law of God. The Bible says that the the path to destruction is wide. It's easy. You, you don't have to do anything. It's everybody kind of can just roll along, and you know that's that's the path to destruction. But for righteousness, it's a, it's a narrow pathway. Not few, not very many people find it. Very few people find it, and that's kind of what we see here. When we don't have a prophet telling people, "This is what's right. This is the law. This is what you need to do," people kind of fall away. The Bible tells us, "How will the people know unless there's someone there to preach it to them?" That's why we have so many preachers and so many evangelists and, and people proclaiming the word all the time because. The people don't know unless you preach it to them, unless you tell them about it. People just don't know the Word of God. They don't know what the Bible says. you got to tell them what it says and show them what it says. And then the response that you're expecting is worship of God because that's all that's left. Once you figure out, I've broken God's commandments, I've broken His law, you understand just how depraved your soul is, and the only thing you can do is cry out to God for repentance and, and give Him worship because He's the only one that's holy. That's, that's what you get out of the Bible. And that's where the Old Testament really comes into all this is it shows us the law condemns. It shows us that we are not holy. We are far from holy. We Men love darkness. But there's one that can lead us out of that darkness, and that's Christ. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. The Bible talks about it in, in John 1. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It calls Jesus the light, the source of all light. And that's what we're looking for. So, that's where we're going to end here. That's the story. That's the, the message that we get from this story. Men love darkness, and there's only one that can lead us out of that darkness, and that's Jesus. So that's the end of the Old Testament. 21 stories, and we're out. We, we missed a couple in there. We missed uh, Job. I was kind of sad we didn't get to cover Job. Uh, missed Jonah in there. Um, good stories. I, I suggest you go back and look at those. Those are some very good stories. I'm going to take about a week break, maybe two. Uh, I have to go do some seminary work. When I get back, we will be jumping into the New Testament and talking about our Messiah, the culmination of everything, the whole point of the Bible right here. So I do hope you join us for that because, man, that's the stuff. So hopefully you come back. Until then, God bless you all. Thank you for joining us for the Old Testament. Come back for the new, because that's where the good stuff really is. <laughs>